All right, how to evangelize. Uh, there is a, a good chance that the word evangelism stirs some anxiety in many of the hearts in this room. It certainly does in my heart. Uh, most Christians are typically in one of three different groups when it comes to evangelism. So there's group one, people who, I mean, they're just obsessed. They, they can't order food at a restaurant without talking about Jesus. Maybe you are one of these people, or maybe you know someone like this. If you know someone, they're very distinct, right? They just constantly, like, they can't have a conversation without bringing up the gospel with anyone. So that's group one. Group two is uh, Christians, there's this is a significant percentage, who are absolutely mortified of the idea of talking about spiritual things with someone who's not a Christian, just absolutely terrifying, uh, maybe a million reasons for that terror. Um, maybe uh, even you might convince yourself, you know, this isn't something for me. Uh, you know, this is for, you know, pastors and raging extroverts, uh, but it's not, not for me at all. So they just, they don't do it at all. And then there's a third group where I think most Christians are, where you're kind of somewhere in between, you know evangelism is something we are commanded to do, uh, that Jesus expects of us, uh, and you do it sometimes, but you're also fairly intimidated, fairly scared, maybe feel ill-equipped in how to do that. Uh, so uh, whatever, whatever category you're in there, uh, I hope this, uh, this class will do two things. I want us to do two things this morning. First, I hope we will move the needle on why we evangelize, on why uh, we need to go out and share Christ with those who don't believe in him. Uh, and then the second thing I want to do is move the needle on how. Once we've got our motivation in place, the why, we need to be thoughtful, we need to be biblical about the how as well. We don't just want to do it in ways that may actually... Uh, make it uh, un create, produce unhealthy results. So we need to be thoughtful about both the why, we want biblical godly motivations, and we want to be thoughtful about the how. So I'm going to begin our time, though, with a question uh, there at the top of your notes. Why don't we evangelize? What are some reasons why Christians don't share the gospel with unbelievers? So I would like us to create a list here together. So you can raise your hand just so for clarity, but what are some reasons why Christians, why we might not evangelize? Keith? Fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. I'll just write rejection because I bet fear will be up here a number of times. All right. Another reason. Betty? Of feeling unqualified. Sorry, my handwriting is atrocious. Uh, another reason. Why don't we evangelize? What are... Huh? Oh, don't want to offend. Offense. All right. Other reasons? Don't know how. Don't know how. I'll write how, question mark. Other reasons? Introverted. You're introverted. Introvert. The old personality juke. Uh, other reasons? Intimidated. Intimidated. Ooh, that's a good word. Intimidated. Intimidated. Did I spell that right? Who cares? All right. Other reasons. Waiting for just the right moment. Waiting for just the right. Uh, so uh, 
How can I write that briefly? <laughs> timing. timing, thank you. Timing. All right, what else? Dan. Universalism. Dan has bad theology. <laughs> Universalism. Great. Thank you, Dan. Other reasons? Location. Location. What do you mean by that? Uh, maybe if you're in a small church or a small town. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So location. Carl, what you, would you have your hand up for? Fear of not being able to answer all our questions. Ooh. Uh, knowledge. knowledge. That's a good one. Knowledge. All right, what else? Yeah, Josh? My pastor will do it. Uh, So I'll just write pastor's job. Pastor's job. All right, what else? Ooh, ooh, that's a good one. Uh, Persecution. Persecution, great one. Anyone, not a great one, but you know what I mean. Uh, other, e- Rob? Oh, wow. So bad understanding of Calvinism. Uh, hmm, how do I do that? Uh, fatalism, not Calvinism, people. Come on. Uh, other reasons? One more. Let's get one more on the board. Lack of courage. That's a, how did we not have that one yet? Uh, courage. All right. Yeah, these, I mean, this is, we're scratching the surface of reasons why we might not evangelize. Just, I wrote some fear of rejection, uncertainty about what the gospel is. I think sometimes we feel inarticulate. Like, I don't know what to say. I know I'm supposed to evangelize, but what are the words that should be coming out of my mouth? That's one. Uh, maybe we, are, we tend to isolate from the world. Maybe we have doubt. We, we, I think, Rob, you brought this one up. They, maybe they won't believe. Uh, Josh, you mentioned thinking it's someone else's job, the pastor's job or an extrovert's job. It's not my job. Uh, I mean, this is, some of this is pretty daunting. Right? This isn't just like, come on, people, get over it. Like that's, that's not, I mean, this is, this, some of this is, I mean, persecution, feeling intimidated, fear of rejection. Uh, yeah, your lack of feeling like you lack knowledge. Those are all legitimate uh, things that can create uh, challenge. And I want to spend just one minute talking about one that Dan helpfully brought up, universalism. I w- wasn't going to say it quite like that. But it is true. We live in the Bible Belt. I mean, uh, Dallas is pretty much the Christianity capital of the world. We have the biggest churches. We have like the chosen is filmed here, I think, right? Like, like there's so much Christianity kind of in the air around us that we can be tempted to think that, oh, you know, everyone around me gets it. People, you know, like they, there's a good chance. They probably already go to a church. So there's no reason for me to try and evangelize them. Uh, so even, yeah, I mean, John, you mentioned persecution, which is legitimate. And I think it's certainly increasing. But none of the reasons we wrote up here is evangelism is illegal. Like that, that's in many places in the world, that is something that would be up here is it's illegal. What am I supposed to do? Just this week, I pulled into the church parking lot uh, and there was a cop car in the parking lot. And I thought there are so many places in the world where a church staff member pulls into work and a police officer being there would strike terror in their heart. Like, oh my goodness, is today the day they're coming for me? 
And I didn't have a thought like that at all. I was like, okay, cool. They're, you know, they're using our parking lot, whatever, right? That happens almost every day, actually. And there's no, there's no fear associated with it. Certainly, yeah, again, persecution, I think, is increasing. Uh, Christianity is becoming, uh, you know, more persona non grata in our world. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not illegal to evangelize. It's not like we're being actively, uh, systematically persecuted in the way that many Christians are around the world, and it is dangerous to evangelism if we assume that we're, you know, we're pretty, th- this part of the country is, is pretty good. You know, people in San Francisco and New York City, man, they need Jesus. But here, we're pretty good. If someone lives here, they're, they're probably all right. So how do we get over that? What's the solution to overcoming that? Well, many of you know I'm from Chicago. And not living in Chicago right now means I rep Chicago very, very hard. So uh, Dennis Nelson and I, every Sunday, I tell him how much I hate the Dallas Cowboys and how foolish he is for cheering for them uh, because I want him to know that the Bears are just, are just better. I tell everyone, I talk to DJ about this all the time, how amazing Justin Fields, the Bears, Chicago Bears quarterback, if you don't know, how amazing he is. I tell people how their pizza is just too thin. Right? It's just, what's going on? You need a thick, good pizza pie, right? Uh, I tell people, you know what? You guys is the second person plural you should be using. Y'all is not a word, right? So uh, being from Chicago, I know that being in Dallas now, you need more Chicago in your lives, right? You need, you need to come around on some of, these, uh, some of these realities. But when I'm in Chicago, I, I'm not telling people their pizza's too thin. They get it, right? They're all right. In the same way, the more you recognize you are not at home, that Dallas, that America is not the promised land, that your citizenship is in heaven and not here, the more you recognize that, the more you will see everyone around you as someone desperately in need of the gospel of Christ. So when you think about your duty to evangelize, we need to have an exile mindset. We need to know we are exiles in this world. We are not at home. And you know, people say, you know, that, that guy's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Uh, that, is, that is completely untrue. The more heavenly minded you are, the more earthly good you will be. The more you know your citizenship is in heaven and that you want people to share in that inheritance, in that citizenship, the more you will, you will look at those around you and see them as those in desperate need of the gospel. So we need that exile mindset. And to establish that kind of mindset, we're going to dig into that first big question here, why? Why should we evangelize? Now, I have three reasons for you here. I'm going to give them to you in ascending order of importance. So by that, I mean, uh, there are all, th- all three of these reasons to evangelize are good motivations. I hope all of them spur in you a desire to share the gospel with unbelievers. But the second reason is a better reason than the first. And the third reason is the best reason of all. And so the three reasons to help you remember them, they spell out the word now, N-O-W, need, obedience, and worth. Need, obedience, and worth. I want you to remember that. I want you to have that in your mind as you think about why you should evangelize, why you should share the gospel with people. And the first there is their need. So this reason is others-focused. It's on them out there. It's, it's uh, about unbelievers themselves. And the motivation is this. Their need is unbelievably desperate. The stakes are infinitely high. 
Now, to show you that, I've listed just some passages from the Bible that talk about the state of unbelievers apart from Christ. I won't read all of them, but I'll I'll look, look at the first one there. Ephesians 2. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Skip down to the last passage there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then at the bottom of that page, I have listed for you just kind of summary descriptions. This is not exhaustive by any stretch. But this is the way the Bible talks about unbelievers. They're dead. They're following Satan. They're enemies of God. They're living in the passions of their flesh. They're blind, unrighteous, excluded from the kingdom of God. They're slaves to sin and they're children of wrath. That's how the Bible talks about unbelievers. Their problem, it's it's not that your unbelieving neighbor has a little injury and you want to say, you might want to get that looked at. You know, you got to, it looks looks like it might hurt. No, their, their problem is that they're dead. They're blind and they are destined for wrath apart from Christ. If you saw a friend standing on the edge of a cliff, completely unaware of their danger, the most unloving thing you could do would be to stand there and do nothing. To act like there is no cliff, there's no rocks at the bottom, everything's just fine. But if if love is in your heart, the most urgent, most important thing you could do would be to run and grab them and lead them to safety. So this first motivation, the the first reason we should evangelize is simply realizing the, the, the reality the Bible unveils for us that that Forrest Gump's mom was wrong. Right, that we're not just floating around accidental-like on the breeze, right? And Lieutenant Dan actually was right, that we all have a destiny. And the destinies are, there's only, there's only two options. There is everlasting joy and there is eternal conscious torment. That is the reality the Bible shows us. And if that's true, then love demands we do something. So I have a quote here from, from C.S. Lewis where he describes this reality. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And so love for neighbor demands we reach out to them with the only hope that can turn any mortal horror into an everlasting Splendor. So in the words of Charles Spurgeon, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's the first reason. Hell is real. The need of unbelievers is 
absolutely desperate. And so love should motivate us to respond. Second reason, our obedience. Now this reason is self-focused. By that I don't mean it's selfishness. I just mean you know, need is about others. Obedience is about you, your own duty, your own responsibility before the Lord. And this one is unbelievably simple. Christ gave us a command. He gave us a duty to bring the gospel to the world. Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I mean, how, how simple could he be? I mean, it's, it's just right there spelled out for you. We've got our marching orders. We have a job to do and we should do it. I've listed uh, several other texts here that, that make this duty clear, but I mean, this, is, this barely scratches the surface. It, I could literally put the whole book of Acts in your notes because the whole point of Acts is the gospel, getting to new places, going to unbelievers through believers. That's what's happening throughout the book of Acts. So even when it's not prescriptive, it's also descriptive all over the Bible. The parable of the sowers about the gospel, you know, scattering the seeds of the gospel so that people might turn and believe. Paul's travel plans at the end of Romans, he's saying, I want to go to Spain because there's unbelievers there who haven't heard about Jesus. He's motivated by this need for obedience. And notice, none of these say, you know, this, um, you know, and none of these, just Jesus or Peter or Paul, whoever's speaking, say, I'm just talking to pastors right now. This is just for, you know, the, the theologically educated, or this is just for those who are gifted with evangelism. No, this is, this is something that is clearly a command for every single Christian. In fact, actually, if you look at Acts chapter 4, uh, I'll read it for you. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 8. Verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So everyone in Jerusalem who's a Christian, other than the apostles, is scattered. And what do those who are scattered do? They go out and preach the word. So it's almost the opposite here. Obviously, the apostles are called to evangelize, but here it's just the non-apostles who are going out and who are evangelizing. So this is not the duty for some select class of Christians. It is the duty of every Christian. And if that's true, if Jesus' command is clear, you need to know, Christian, that one day when you stand before God, he will ask you, I gave you a command. Did you obey it? When he gives something that, that this is unbelievably clear, you can expect to be asked this question. I gave you a command. Did you obey it? Christians are not called to some cushy isolationism apart from the rest of the world where we just wait out this present evil age. No, 2 Corinthians 5 says we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We are not a monastery sequestered away from the rest of the world. We are an army of ambassadors sent out with the gospel. And that's actually what God has saved us to. So he has saved us from our sin, but he's actually saved us to an evangelistic life. 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race. This is what he's made you. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
And his, excellence, his excellencies lead us right into our third and our greatest reason to share the gospel with an unbelieving world. So their need is desperate. Jesus commands our obedience. And finally, God is unimaginably beautiful, glorious, and worthy of all of our praises. The first reason there, right, need is focused on unbelievers. The second on you, your own duty before the Lord. And this third reason, the final and greatest reason is all about who your God is. John Piper, very famously, uh, at the first opening paragraph of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he's talking about missions specifically, but uh, missions is a subset of evangelism. It's just evangelism across cultural borders. So he said, so it certainly applies. He says this, missions or evangelism is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions or evangelism exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions and evangelism because we simply aim to bring the nations into the white hot enjoyment of God's glory. I think this is, this is crazy and it's just so, so cool. God reveals his excellencies. He reveals his worth in saving us. And 1 Peter 2, he saves us so that we might proclaim his excellencies. We might magnify those excellencies. And those very excellencies are the best motivation for why we go and tell people about him. To say it another way, God's glory is the result it is the revelation, it's what's revealed, and it is the reason of evangelism. It's what evangelism leads to. It's what we see in the evangel, in the gospel itself. And it is why we should go and talk about this God with an unbelieving world. There is no better reason for evangelism than the awe-inspiring worth of God. See this a lot of places in the Bible. I want to show you one that I think it's particularly clear in Isaiah chapter 6. So this is a good chunk of passage. I'm going to read the whole thing. This is Isaiah's call to ministry, and this is what happens. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I, that's Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Here's what, here, let's just track what just happened in Isaiah 6 there. So verses 1 through 4, Isaiah is in heaven and he sees God in his unbelievable glory. And then verse 5, Isaiah recognizes his own sinful state. Woe is me. And then verse 6 and 7, Isaiah's sin is atoned for and cleansed. And then 
The next thing that happens, verse eight, God asks who will go and Isaiah jumps out of his seat saying, here I am, send me. Why? Why does Isaiah do that? Because nothing will motivate you to talk about something more than a deep sense of joy and amazement at it. When you see God's beauty as Isaiah did, and you recoil at your own sin, as Isaiah did. And you know the cleansing touch of the gospel of God with your guilt taken away, as Isaiah did. You too will jump out of your seat to tell people about this God, as Isaiah did. That's why this series is structured this way. Delight, display, declare. Everything flows from your delight in this God. It is so easy for me to talk about how much I love eating Raising Cane's. It's so easy. It's so easy for me to talk about how amazing my wife and kids are. I, love, I would brag about them at this pulpit every Sunday for an hour if Jared wouldn't fire me for it, right? I would love to do that. It's easy for me to talk about J.R.R. Tolkien. Just go on mon- long monologues talking about him. In fact, I get frustrated in conversation when it, the, the conversation doesn't you know, veer towards one of these things eventually. Right? If I don't get to talk about Tolkien or my wife or Keynes or something, like, something I'm obsessed with, I get, I get a little frustrated in conversation. I'm being a little facetious. Don't worry. If we had a conversation, we weren't talking about that. I'm not mad at you. But in the same way, there is nothing that will set your heart ablaze with evangelistic fervor more than seeing the beauty of your God in the gospel itself. When you, when you see it and you are just captivated by it, you will experience a holy frustration when you don't get to talk about it. Look at the second half of, of some of those passages that I read earlier here about sin. So earlier we read Ephesians 2. We did verses 1 through 3. Let's start at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. You were dead and now you're alive. You were following Satan and now you're seated with Christ. You were a child of wrath and now you bask in the immeasurable riches of grace. How could we not talk about this? If that's what God has done, how could we be silent? Same thing, 1 Corinthians 6. We read verses 9 and 10 earlier. Look at verse 11. 9 and 10 describe those who are excluded from the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When you know down to your bones that, that and such were some of you, that God saved you, there's not a single thing on this whiteboard that will keep you from talking about him. They, they could kill you, but they can't shut you up because you are so amazed at this God and what he has done in his gospel. The most important thing for your evangelism is your apprehension of God's glory. It is revealed in evangelism, it is the result of evangelism, and it is the best reason we could ever have 
to evangelize. Elliot Clark, in a book I'm going to give away at the end of this, it's a really, really good book called uh, uh, Evangelism is Exiles. He says this. He's a missionary somewhere in, in North Africa, I believe. He says, I believe one of the greatest hindrances to evangelism is fear, or more accurately, a lack of fear. Our absence of appropriate fear is actually part of the problem. The solution is to fight fear with fear, to grow in our fear of God and our fear for, not of, our fellow man. That's why. That's why we need to share the gospel, because we know our God. We fear him in a a reverence, awe-inspiring kind of way, and we want to talk about him. So those those are the three reasons. N-O-W, need, obedience, and worth. And now let's get to the, the practical side of things. How? How do you share the gospel with an unbeliever? I have uh, eight adverbs for you we're going to look at. Uh, they don't spell anything nice like space pets, so if you, if you love space pets, I apologize. Um, but uh, yeah, so we'll go through these eight adverbs. Two quick things I want to say uh, before we go through them. First, uh, part of evangelism, if you're a parent, is uh, discipling, evangelizing your own children, sharing the gospel with them. Uh, but Carl is going to have a tech on family discipleship in a couple weeks, so we're just going to set that aside for now. Uh, and I'm going to mostly talk about evangelism outside of the home. Uh, and then secondly, uh, the reason I have all these as adverbs uh, is because all of you have unique lives that are going to be different than mine. So I'm going to give some examples about uh, what I try to do in my own life. And they are going to be very catered towards someone who's 31 years old with three young kids and who works in ministry, right? So I can't give you all the nuts and bolts for your own life. But if I kind of cast the vision with some adverbs, hopefully it'll, it'll help you see how to apply them to your own situation. So the first three reasons here, the first three, not reasons, first three uh, adverbs uh, are kind of, they're all mapped onto the three, um, the three motivations we just saw, need, obedience, and worth. So this first one, evangelize urgently. It comes from that, that first one, people's need. We need to evangelize urgently. So if, if judgment is indeed coming, if, as we saw, hell is real and the fate of every human being hinges on their response to the gospel, we must be urgent in our evangelism. We must be urgent. I don't mean by that that we need to uh, just preach a, a turn or burn kind of message where we're really sounding angry, uh, which often will drive people away typically. Uh, but I do mean we need to impress upon people the absolute seriousness of their situation. This is not a, a light thing. This is not, oh, that's an interesting thought. This is heaven and hell. This is everlasting splendor and immortal horror. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we need to know the fear of the Lord, which is here, he's talking about the coming judgment, and we need to implore unbelievers to be reconciled to God. Think about that verb, implore. Implore. That's not a, that's not a casual kind of suggestion. That's a, a, an urging, a begging we need to take this seriously. And, and by that, I don't mean also either that, that you, know, you just need to kind of force a decision right away, anything like that. That often, I think, leads to unhealthy results in evangelism. But I do mean, uh, so yeah, so I, I don't mean never play the long game. I think the long game of, of building relationships and, and loving people over time does actually tend to bear a, a healthier fruit in terms of evangelism. 
but what I am saying here is, is, you know, playing the long game is fine as long as you keep playing the game. We need, we need to impress upon people persistently how serious their situation is apart from Jesus. Could you sleep if, if you had the cure for cancer and your friend was dying of it, would you, would you back away after he refused it the first time? No, no, you, you would keep pressing him faithfully day after day because you love him. We need to evangelize urgently. Next, we need to evangelize intentionally. Now this flows from that second motivation I talked about, our obedience. So imagine, imagine the president sends a diplomat to a foreign nation and he says, you're my representative, tell the people of that nation, I want to make peace. I want us to be at peace. And then the diplomat gets there and he, he just moves in and he starts living like the locals and he says, I'm just going to wait for an opportunity to share my diplomatic message. Would that be a faithfully executed diplomacy? Absolutely not. No, he's been given a command. He's been given a task and he can't just sit back and say, I'll wait, I'll wait for the opportunity to, to bring this message. In the same way, Jesus, our king, has given us a clear command. We are his ambassadors, bringing a message of peace with God. And too often, we live like the locals and we just wait for an opportunity when we might get to say something semi-spiritual. We just kind of sit back and forget that Jesus' command is an imperative. It is an action. It is active. It's not something we obey passively by waiting for evangelistic opportunities to fall into our laps. Now, I will say, God is cool. And sometimes that happens. Uh, this was a little over a year ago. I was in the gym and this dude came up to me and he goes, here's the thing, man. My daughter's in the hospital I'm freaking out and I feel really weirdly drawn to talk to you. I was like, okay, cool, let's talk. And I got to talk with him. I got to share the gospel with him. I got to pray with him in the gym. He actually came and visited our church. It was, it was really cool. I got to tell him about Jesus. It was, it was crazy. But that's literally the only time that's ever happened to me. And if I was waiting for random dudes to come up to me in the gym and say, I feel drawn to talk to you, I would be unbelievably unfaithful in my evangelism. So when I say be intentional, I mean make plans that give you the opportunity to talk with non-believers. Make plans, do things in your life that, that bring unbelievers into your orbit or get into theirs. I, I mentioned, I, f I feel this with the nature of my own job, right? I sit in an office in a church building, you know, five feet from Carl and 15 feet from Jared. They're not exactly right pickings for evangelism. Right? Their job is to study the Bible all day. Right? Not exactly right pickings. So I know I need to go out of my way and do things that put me in relationships with unbelievers. Maybe this is the case for you too. Maybe you work for a Christian organization. Uh, maybe you work from home. Maybe your day-to-day -day just doesn't involve a lot of time with non-Christians. So make plans. Be Intentional. Here's just a few examples of, of how I try to do this. So, uh, one, I coach my son's soccer team. Let me tell you something. I hate soccer. Soccer is, sorry, some, Jared, I'm sorry. Soccer is a boring sport. It's not great. I don't like it very much. And, bigger problem, I know 
nothing about it. So you need me to teach you how to play soccer? We're in big trouble. But obviously I do it partly because I love my kids and I want to be involved in their lives. But it puts me in relationship by being the coach. The parents of other kids have to get to know me. They are forced to. So I get to talk with them. Oh, what do you do? Oh, I work at a church. This is great, right? You, you get these opportunities to talk about Christ just by be, being in those kind of positions. So put yourself in those kind of positions. Something I've, I've done in the past, I, I actually haven't done since moving to McKinney. I'd like to get back to it. Um, but I would, I would work at, when we lived in Lubbock, I would work at Starbucks two or three afternoons out of the week. It just my job enabled me to be able to do that. And I would get to know the baristas. And there was one guy, Caleb, and he, he was a barista and he was there, uh, you know, every Thursday and he had a lot of really good spiritual questions. We got to talk about the gospel, got to talk about Christ with him just because I was there regularly. And he noticed that and he, he wanted to get to know me. Just, I just happened to put myself kind of in his orbit. Now, I, I, by using myself, I don't mean to, you know, say I'm a great example of this. I don't think this is a particular strength of mine. But the point I'm trying to make is really, really simple. Do things like that. Do things that that are intentional, that create evangelistic opportunities. So take an interest in the lives of your coworkers. Get to know other moms at the park. Have your neighbors over for dinner. Visit the same coffee shops or lunch spots. Be involved in the community. That's the kind of intentionality Jesus expects when he gives a command. So again, another quote from Elliot Clark. Uh, Here, uh, it's on the next page. He says this, For Jesus' disciples, the call to be fishers of men didn't conjure images of a leisurely weekend on the shore passively waiting for a bite. They understood fishing to be a labor. It involved risk and implied a proactive approach of launching out with nets to claim a catch. So evangelize intentionally. Third here, evangelize joyfully. Evangelize joyfully. If the worth and beauty of God is our primary motivation in evangelism, if it is the the content of the gospel, all our talking about it should be seasoned with joy. It should come across, right? So Psalm 1611, David is just, he's just singing in praise to God. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's just exulting in the joy of the Lord. He's amazed at God. He's, he's staggered that he made known to him the paths of life. He's just singing about it. That's, that's pretty much what evangelism is. You're just bragging about your God. You're just saying, isn't he amazing? Right, so it's, it's not some bad salesman pitch right, where you're trying to convince someone to buy something they don't want anyway, that they're not going to enjoy. No, you're, you're saying, try the steak. It's amazing. I had it. You should have it too. It's so, so good. This is again, why in our mission statement, it's in this order. Delight, display, declare. Your delight in God, your savoring of the gospel should come out when you talk about him. Evangelize joyfully. Next, evangelize clearly. Evangelize clearly. It is so unfortunate that uh, in many, I took a class in evangelism in college with one of my favorite professors, and we never actually defined what the gospel is, despite the fact that the word evangel means gospel. So evangelism is gospeling. And I've been in other trainings for evangelism, and 
And I've never actually heard the gospel defined in an evangelistic class. Maybe, hopefully you have, if you've been in one, something like that. But we need to be totally clear on what we're communicating. If maybe you get tripped up, you feel inarticulate. I don't know what to say. I don't know, what, what is the gospel I'm trying to say? I, I'm not a theologian. Well, let's make it real easy for you. We need clarity. And so two things I want to do very quickly is first, we need to know what the gospel is not. And second, we need to know what the gospel is. So what is the gospel not? The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not be the best that you can be. The gospel is not a, a pat on the back for religious people or, or good advice or some vague hopefulness that things will work out. Now, hopefully you're all on board with all of that. You're like, okay, yes, that's not the gospel. But in circles like ours, we're also likely to, to make the mistake of equating pre-evangelism with evangelism. Here, here's what I mean by that. So pre-evangelism is, is things you do to, to break down barriers so that someone might be open to receiving the gospel. So, for example, pre-evangelism can be... Uh, explaining to someone that God exists. So there's, there's, all, there's, there's three famous arguments, right? There's several arguments for why God exists. Those are good, those are useful, but it's pre-evangelism. It's not evangelism. Job's not done. You, you might explain that, that naturalistic theories about the origin of the universe kind of collapse in on themselves. That they're, 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 they're missing something really key if they're just purely naturalistic. It, it doesn't actually make sense. It doesn't actually answer the question. You can unpack that for someone that's pre-evangelism, but it's not evangelism. Telling someone Christians don't hate gay people, explaining to them why that's true, why we don't hate gay people, that's not what we're trying to be about. Explaining actually our understanding of the nature of sin and our love for all of those who are apart from Christ, that, that's, that's important, but it's pre-evangelism, it's, it's not evangelism. Pre-evangelism is important. In many cases, it will be necessary to break down barriers so people will actually give you a hearing. But don't stop there because none of those things, not one of them, will make a whit of difference on the last day. People don't need some knowledge, however accurate. They need news. They need news. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. So for the sake of clarity, I have... A few summaries of the gospel here in, in varying sizes. So this first one I got from a church in Austin, real short and sweet. The holy God sent his perfect son to save helpless sinners. That's the gospel. This second one here is from uh, Tim's, uh, his definition in our membership class. It says the good news, the gospel is the good news that God is reestablishing his kingdom and redeeming humanity and creation from sin through the person and work of Jesus so that we might glorify and enjoy him forever. I love that. Real robust, packs a lot in one little sentence. And then this third one, it's, it's long. I won't read it just because we're running low on time already here, but it's from Mark Dever in his book on evangelism, which I'm going to give away in a minute. Uh, and then fourth, uh, this is what I actually personally have in my mind when I'm trying to talk about Christ with a non-believer. God, man, Christ response. Four things I want to hit in this conversation. So they need to know who God is. God is holy. He's a creator. He's, he's the one to whom they owe everything. They need to know who they are, man. They need to know that we're sinful, we're rebels against the God who has made us. They need to know who Christ is, what he has done in paying the penalty for our sins so that we can, through faith in him, be reconciled to God. And they need to know they must respond. 
That's part of the urgency too, right? They need to know you can't just let this sit. You need to, you need to make a decision. Will you turn or will you stay where you are and reject this God? God, man, Christ response. I find that, find that helpful personally. Uh, next, we need to evangelize prayerfully. So Paul there in Ephesians 3, again, we're running low on time. I want to make sure we have time for Q&A. But he, he talks about his prayer life. And he says, I'm praying that they would uh, comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's this really epic prayer. But what's crazy is he's praying that prayer for Christians. He's talking about believers in that prayer. And so if it's believers who desperately need prayer to comprehend the love of Jesus, how much more do unbelievers need it? In fact, prayerful evangelism is a theological necessity. It's a theological necessity. Look at Ezekiel 36. I just want you to notice, run your eyes over it. This is the promises of God to save for himself a people. Just run your eyes over it and notice how many times the word I shows up. I, 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 I. It's God talking. So why all the eyes? What's God talking about? He's saying, I'm the only one who can do it. Only God can make dead hearts beat. Only God can make blind eyes see. Only God can turn a child of wrath into an heir of his kingdom. Only God can do that. So pray, pray, pray. Pray for boldness, for opportunities. Pray for clarity as Paul prays in Colossians chapter four. Pray for God to move because if he doesn't, you can be as articulate as you want to be. You can be as urgent as you want to be. You can be, you know, you can be fill everything, all, every, every one of these other adverbs. You can do all of them perfectly. If God doesn't move, evangelism is a dead exercise. Nothing will happen. Evangelize prayerfully. Next, evangelize ecclesiologically. Ecclesiology is the area of a theology associated with the church, but churchologically just doesn't sound good. So ecclesiologically. Uh, when you think about the church's role in evangelism, I suspect uh, there's probably two things that come to your mind. One, invite non-Christians to come to church, to attend. Two, bring non-Christians into the orbit of your pastor. And that's about it. That's kind of all we think about. And those are fine. Those are good things to do. But that is a, a far too small vision of the church's role in evangelism. I want you to look at, at John chapter 1, verse 19. I've got to turn the page here. John writes, No one has ever seen God, but God the only Son has made him known. And now look at 1 John chapter 4. Same author, almost the same words. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. You see what he's saying there? Do you, do you notice that? John 1, you can't see God except when you see Jesus. 1 John 4, you can't see God except when you see the church love one another. That is the role of the church in evangelism. John is intentionally drawing a comparison with something he said before. The invisible God becomes visible in Christ and two, the invisible God becomes visible in the church when we love one another. When unbelievers see you bearing with your brothers and sisters in Christ through disagreements and through strife and not going out and disparaging them behind closed doors. When unbelievers see you encourage and honor your fellow believers in, in ways that the world never does and can't understand. 
when they see you weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice simply because you're members at Parkway together. When they see that, the invisible God becomes visible to them. They see the gospel. That's what I mean by evangelize ecclesiologically. Your relationship with your fellow believers testifies to the watching world the gospel really is true. Again, delight, display, declare. This flows from the first two. There's a lot more we could say about this. Uh, Just on a more practical level, invite your fellow church members and your unbelieving friends to the same things. That's a great way. Get some help in evangelism. Watch football games. Go to the park. Do play game nights. Get get your your fellow church members involved in those you're trying in the lives of those you're trying to share the gospel with. Next, evangelize strategically. I have to do this one real quick. Uh, I want us to look at Acts 17. I don't have time to read it, so I just have to explain it for you. Uh, In Acts 17, Paul is in Athens and he's evangelizing. He's sharing the gospel with a bunch of unbelievers and he does two things. First, he finds overlaps between the culture and the gospel. And second, he draws a line in the sand and says, here's where you're wrong. So we see the first thing there in in verses 22 through 28. Uh, Again, I I don't have time to read it, but he's, he's latching on to something they're familiar with to talk about spiritual things. They have this altar to the unknown God and Paul's like, cool, let's talk about that. You have an altar to the unknown God. Why is that? This is really interesting. Let me tell you about what that God is like. And he says a bunch of things they probably already agree with. He even quotes their own poets. Interesting. He finds overlaps, builds a bridge between their culture and the gospel. But then, verses 29 through 31, he draws a line in the sand and shows them where they're wrong. I'll read this part. He says, being then God's offspring... We ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he would judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul says a bunch of things they agree with. And then he draws a line. And he talks about repentance and judgment and righteousness. He builds this connection, but he he doesn't water down anything. He's not, not, you know, watering down the gospel in any way. He's saying, you care about these things. These are good things. But let me tell you actually what you're missing. He's being strategic. So how can we do this today? The world loves talking about things like justice, things like love, and things like beauty. Those are three things you hear the world talk about constantly. Listen to anything on the radio, talking about one of those things. There's a good chance. And we can say, let's talk about those things. Those are hugely important things. Those things that are intrinsic to the world God has made. And it's good to long for and to cherish those things. And too many non-believers, Christians, too many non-believers have just heard us yell about how they get love and justice wrong. And they haven't heard us say, love and justice are good, biblical, glorious things we want to talk about. But there's also a line in the sand because the world does misunderstand justice, love, and beauty with devastating effects. We can take the opportunity to show that a much more captivating vision that the Bible gives us of what those things are. So we find all three of those things in the gospel. That's strategic. Finally, Evangelize comprehensively. Evangelize comprehensively. Throughout the Bible, 
we find a lot of connections between the life you live and the gospel you proclaim. So uh, there's a quote falsely attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, right? You may have heard it. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. One, he never said it. Two, it's false. Wrong. You can't preach the gospel without using words. The gospel needs words because we need to be clear, right? No one's just going to look at you and be like, he's so nice. I think I'll believe in Jesus. doesn't happen. But while good works by themselves are not evangelism, they are a part, an essential part of an evangelistic life. Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you're a selfish jerk all the time, no one's going to care what you say about Jesus. They will not care. Titus 2, I'm not going to read it, it applies to bond servants, but the point is, if you want to share the gospel with your boss, be a great worker. First Peter 3, this applies to wives. If you want your spouse to believe in Jesus, be a great spouse. So my neighbor, my next door neighbor is a believer and he is the best neighbor I have ever had in my entire life. He, I mean, they brought us cookies on the, like the first day we moved in. Two weeks ago, he spent four hours drilling holes in concrete with me in the burning sun. And it's so sweet. They keep trying to evangelize us. It's so nice. And man, if I wasn't a Christian already, I probably would be now. Because he's great. And he's just a great neighbor. And, and I mean, yeah, I, I want my life to look like that. I want my life to be someone like, man, that guy is, is so kind and so generous. And when he tells me about Jesus, I, I really want to listen to him because there's clearly something different in his life. We need to evangelize comprehensively and we need to live lives that display the gospel that we love even as we proclaim it on our lips. So church, may that be, may that be true of us. Let me pray. I'll give away some books and then we'll have, we've got a couple of minutes for Q&A. Let's pray. Father, I pray you would light in a flame in every heart in this room to share the gospel with those who don't have it. I pray we would be thoughtful about our different areas of influence, our, our homes, our jobs, our different things we do with our lives. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see those who don't know you, who don't love you. And we pray, Father, we would have the gospel quick and ready on our lips, joyfully proclaimed so that they might turn and trust in Jesus too. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.